last has been mentioned already. We are certainly proud of the accomplishments of the graduates here today for, for Jake and Rebecca, and no doubt it is a milestone to graduate high school uh, and to be able to graduate college a bit unscathed by the worldview that surround us, surrounds Christ's followers as it is in this world today. Even at high school, even in preschool, even all the way up through college, we are surrounded with a worldview that is antagonistic to the gospel. So I'm proud of you guys for, uh, for working through um, high school and college, and, and certainly this message is not only for our graduates, but for all of us in here today, because I believe that it is absolutely important, imperative, that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ be people of the utmost integrity, to be people who mean what we say and say what we mean. In a world that is frightening and can be an intimidating place for a child of God in Christ Jesus. I remember when I graduated from high school, one of the first things that I thought, well, maybe if this is a bad omen for the rest of my life, is I about tripped over my robe coming up the platform and almost did a face plant. And I remember thinking to myself after my embarrassment and receiving my diploma, my first thought was, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? See, I did not have, if you will, a discipler, a person to, to disciple me in my, in, in my faith and, and help to steer. So that is another highlight of the importance of family discipleship and disciple-making. My, my, my next thought was, oh well, let's party. And I did that for about 15, 20 years. But I'm thankful for God's sovereignty. I'm thankful that He called me to serve Him until my last breath. And if you are here today in Jesus, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, if you've been changed, quickened, awakened, born again, then you are also called to serve Him until your last breath. People often say, the world is getting worse. You ever heard anybody say that? Maybe you've said that. The world is getting worse. Or, I never thought that I would see some of the evils that I am seeing today. Maybe it's we have avenues and ways to see all the evils in the world through social media and our devices and and other things that broadcast it 24 hours, 7 days a week and and I understand that life and culture seems to be side-railed. It seems to be coming unraveled. And there's uncertainty. But I just simply believe that it is due to the depravity and the brokenness that infects the world. It is because of sin. It is because of the fall. It surrounds us each and every day. Now, for those that I mentioned and those that we've honored today who are graduating I will say to you this, if you pursue the Lord Jesus for any amount of time, there will be those who will oppose you. There will be people who oppose that very thought 
There will be those who oppose you, those who will gnash their teeth at the very thought of the exclusive nature of salvation in Christ alone. To say that Jesus is the exclusive means to be pleasing in the sight of God is offensive to the world that we live in. Now, I think of my own children. I think of potential situations in their lives that they may endure, and I'm scared. And it often makes me think, as the revelator who wrote the revelation of John said, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Then I'm reminded of the verse that I read to you last week in Romans. Romans 8 and verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Underlined for emphasis there. For those who are called according to His purpose. If there ever was a time for a high call to disciple our family, I believe it's now. If there ever was a time when we must saturate our, our, our youth, our children, our students, saturate them with prayer, it's now. To shower them with love, to invest time in getting to know your children better on the spiritual level. What are my children going through spiritually? How's their walk with Jesus? And then to place Christ front and center in all that we do. I know that sounds oversimplistic. I know, I know that sounds sometimes even, even, even easier said than done. But to place Christ front and center of all that we, we do. Now today we're going to finish the series that we have been working through in the book of Acts in chapter 7. And uh, we are going to close out this saga of Stephen with some encouraging and challenging words from Luke the Evangelist who wrote the book of Acts. Today is part three of that saga, and I have just simply subtitled this, Casting Stones at the Innocent. Casting Stones at the Innocent. So I ask if you will, let's stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Hope you found that in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. I will begin reading in verse 54, and we'll finish through the rest of this chapter. Let's see the response of the Sanhedrin after Stephen had preached and gave a speech from the history, biblical history of biblical salvation. Let's, uh, let's read that together. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They then cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've come today to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
There's a lot of different things that we can say this morning. How our hearts are burdened for the lost. Our hearts are burdened for our students and young folks as they enter into a world. I pray that we would exhaust our resources to give them the tools that they need to make Christ preeminent in their lives and their families and all that they do. There's a lot of different application that we'll hear today in your word, and we thank you for that. I pray, God, that you will speak through your word. Teach us, mold us, shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Luke had dictated Stephen's speech before what is known as the Sanhedrin. This is a council of religious people. And this consists at this time of people that are called freedmen from the north. It consists of the Sanhedrin that is there. It also consists of all those people who are on the outside listening in to Stephen's speech at this point. He begins to work through biblical history. He begins at Abraham and works all the way through biblical history, ending with the death of Jesus as the righteous one, the Messiah. Stephen's accusation is stinging, as we looked at this last week, that said, you have always resisted. You have always resisted God. But verse 52, what a stinging accusation this is. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Implying that they persecuted them all. And they were full of disbelief. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Isaiah comes to mind as a prophet, martyred for announcing the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and you have murdered. So he spent ample time building this case and cataloging, cataloging what I called last week of, of faithful people and faithless people throughout biblical history. In effect, Stephen was placing this Sanhedrin, let's call him the Sanhedrin for for our references this morning. He was placing the Sanhedrin on trial instead of them placing Stephen on trial. And he used God's Word to do it. As a person who was full of the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible tells us about Stephen, that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit, motivated, moved by the Holy Spirit, and who is utilizing the Word of God. He was using it so vividly. It was as if the Lord Himself had been placed and placed them on trial. He used God's Word. He used God's Word as the rule, the standard, to hold them to trial. So let's finish chapter 7, and we will see how they react. Now let me say this. The reading of God's Word in front of those who are attentive, for the church and for those who the Lord might who the Lord might be dealing with. Let's just put it that way. When the reading of God's Word is, is read and expounded, and when the teacher, preacher, pastor gives an exhortation, a challenge, an application, there's either one or two reactions to hearing God's Word. The two reactions are there is either conviction or there is rebellion. There is either conviction, being convicted, by what you hear, or rebellion. Now, which one of these two do you think that these brethren were accused of? Which is it that these brethren, is it conviction or is it rebellion? Now, they were cut to the heart 
But were they cut to the heart towards repentance or were they cut to the heart and rebelled against these accusations? Well, Luke lets us know, and we've already read it in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. You might have a King James that might say they were cut to the heart. They ground their teeth or they gnashed their teeth at him. They bit down in anger. So here is Stephen. He is the one who's supposed to be on trial. And he turned it around and showed them the history of their rejection. The historicity and this long longevity of rejection. He turned it on them. And I must say that in some regard, this is humanity on trial. This is a snapshot, an icon, if you will, a thumbnail of humanity on trial because humanity has a history of letting things turn south. As the old saying is, give us enough rope. Yeah, humanity has a history of letting things turn south, even in the church. Because Stephen began his speech with an appeal to his brothers, brothers and fathers, hear me. He is pleading. It is likely that he would also have given them an opportunity to respond with repentance. In some circles, we might call this an altar call, a time of response, an invitation. But the opposite happened. They were so angry that they did not allow him even to make the appeal, to finish out the appeal to his brethren. So Luke tells us that they were enraged, they were angry, and they used the same word here, cut to the heart, for remorse or for anger. And so this cutting to the heart, translated in the ESV as enraged, they were enraged. And so they were so angry at Stephen's accusations that they were guilty that they begin to grit their teeth. So here's the picture. It's like biting with a loud noise. In a subtle way, Luke is, is saying that they were instantaneously like a pack of wild wolves ready to pounce on their prey. That's how angry they were. And my friends, I must say that that is a picture of the world we live in. Where the gospel is offensive where people will shut out everything they can from displaying the truth of Jesus. So what does a man do who is motivated by the Holy Spirit? Stephen being motivated by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit, what does a man who is motivated by the Holy Spirit, how do they respond? Well, one thing you won't hear him say, listen to me, you idiots or any other, other descriptive there? Does a person full of the Holy Spirit say, well, you don't believe me? Well, burn in hell then. Pardon the language. Does Stephen do that? Does Stephen respond in anger? Yes, I get it. There is righteous indignation, I think, when there's evil, when there's injustice. I do think that. But there is also burden, a burden for the lost. And I believe Stephen had a burden for his brother to hear and to repent. But he was not given that opportunity to give that response. A person who is moved and motivated by the Holy Spirit of God will be burdened by this rejection of the Messiah, Jesus. You might have people in your family right now who reject Jesus Christ. You might have friends that reject Jesus. My friends, that, that should burden us. It's something that we should not ever get used to. 
In fact, this is what Stephen said. He said, but he's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand. He said, behold, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here it is. Stephen has now pulled this hand grenade in, in, in sermons we call a sermon a homily. We call a sermon a homily. And so in this regard, Stephen has pulled this homiletic hand grenade and has let the word of God fall where it may fall. The word of God has been presented. Now was the time for the deliverer Stephen to look to God for the work is what he's doing. He saw a vision of Jesus standing in, the, in heaven at the right hand of God. And there are two historical ways. Somebody might say, you notice Jesus is standing. Did you notice Jesus is standing here? Two ways of understanding or trying to explain why Jesus is standing. Why is, what is the position of Jesus? We notice in the New Testament scripture, Jesus is noted over and again multiple times as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Example, one example is Colossians 3 and verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This occurs multiple places in scripture. Some see this as Jesus standing as a sweet and beautiful Savior that he is ready to receive Stephen as the first Christian martyr ever. He was faithful. Jesus was standing to receive Stephen. Others see Jesus standing in a position of judgment. That Jesus was standing in judgment against the Sanhedrin and all of those who had now stoned Stephen. But regardless of all of this, his speech is validated. How is it validated? Well, he will shortly enter into the presence of Jesus, his Lord. What we find on the other side is hatred, disdain for Stephen, but more for Jesus. I don't think it's particularly that it is Stephen they hate, but the message that he preached of Jesus that hate made him the object of this hatred. And yet we see Jesus as a loving, welcoming Savior. Now, since Stephen is being driven entirely by the Holy Spirit of God, he, he is led to repeat the words of Jesus himself. Very similar to the words of Jesus before the same council, Jesus had predicted his own glorification. In fact, we find that in Matthew 26 and verse 64, declaring of himself, Jesus himself, is the exaltation of the Son of Man. And we know that this exaltation of Jesus, the Son of Man, has not only already began, but it is actual. The Son of God has been glorified and lifted up and exalted. Do you believe that? Thus, it is as if Stephen, who's standing before this council... Standing before the living Christ, they are now guilty. It's a reminder for us all. This is a very important reminder to let the Word of God be the determining factor in our lives. Let God's Word be true and every man a liar. Let God's Word be true. 
And here's the thing. We don't have to scratch our heads and try to figure out life situations. We don't have to try to figure out so much about those who are opposed to Christ. We know the world is full of Christ and uh, Christ haters um, and antichrist and those who are antagonistic to the gospel. And for that, there should be a burden for those folks. But the Word of God is our guide and the Holy Spirit is our guide. And they navigate us through life. That is our God. The problem with this scenario is this, that humanity thinks that it knows better than the omnipotent, omniscient God who is over everything. The world we live in thinks that they know better and have it all figured out more so than the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God who is over everything. I know people even in the church who consider themselves followers of Jesus, who have a broadcast, and in this broadcast it is called, What Does the Bible Say? Now you think you hear a program entitled that, well, they're going to tell us what the Bible says, wouldn't you? Even in this broadcast of something that says, what does the Bible say, they misrepresent the Bible and what the Bible actually says. And so this is a danger of not holding true God's word from cover to cover. Why do you think that Stephen went back to Abraham and worked himself through salvation history? He was using the Bible holistically. He wasn't just ripping verses out of context and spreading them over life as if there's some, as if there's some magical spell. Hold God's word true from beginning to end. And everything else in between. But how did the council react to Stephen's vision? Here's how they, rea they reacted. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And it, to me, this just reminds me of a, a snotty-nosed brat, bratty child who don't like what they hear. And so they cover their ears and they shout as loud as they can so they don't have to hear what is being said. But for them... I want, to, I want to represent the biblical narrative correctly. For them, it had more to do with something that they considered blasphemy. Okay, because if Stephen's vision is true, if his vision is true, then the Sanhedrin has murdered an innocent man. And we know what it says of Christ, that he had no deceit, he was sinless. So at this point, some of the crowd began to, to join in the protest. As Luke says, they, the crowd, they cried out with a loud voice and they rushed together like a mob upon Stephen. It is interesting how legalistic, and how, how legalistic this council is supposed to be, what I mean in terms of the law and of justice. They're supposed to be kind of like the examples of the law of God and the justice of God, and yet they had not cast one single vote as to the fate of Stephen. See, this is what sin and rebellion will do. It will cloud true righteous judgment and put in its place self-righteousness. Which I must submit to you is really not righteousness at all. So, as we read this, it is evidently clear that there was no conviction but rebellion that filled their hearts. He gives a good lesson. A good lesson of holding true to Jesus in the presence of the enemy. Think about it. What joy it would be. What joy would it be even in our context 
What joy would it be for uh, if these men would have repented and turned to Christ? Don't know what history would look like. Would there be a dispersion? Don't know what history would look like or whatever. There might be revival that would break out anyway. But what joy that would be if, if men and women would, would repent. What joy it would be in our context if men and women who have somewhat against one another would forgive one another and love on one another the way the Bible describes and demonstrates. Could you imagine what type of revival we might have if we seen reconciliation well, here is Stephen standing true, even when the world around him is looking down on him. Now, Athanasius is probably not a household name. Athanasius was an early bishop of Alexandria. The Council of Nicaea in 325, Athanasius contested against Arius, the teachings of Arius. Arius was a early heretic who stated that Christ was not eternal. In fact, his song goes something like this. There was a time when Jesus was not. Saying that, Christ, that Jesus was a creative being and was not eternal, but that he was also not only not eternal, but that he was subordinate to the Father. Athanasius, during his time as bishop, was sent through five different exiles. And he finally came before the emperor uh, Theodosius I who demanded that he stop opposing Arius. Because at this time, somehow, somehow this thought of Arianism flourished in the kingdom for whatever reason. And Athanasius was in opposition to this. The emperor rebuked Athanasius and said, Do you realize that all of the world is against you? Athanasius quickly answered, he said, Then I am against all the world. To have true conviction from the Holy Spirit is one that is also truly convinced that what we hear and read is true and conviction is true and repentance is needed. Even in the world that is against you, be convinced be convicted that Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation, and the truth. And be willing, if time ever comes to this, to face death in Jesus' name. It was once stated, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about men who, are, who, who, who have courage in their convictions and you think in history, Nero and Caligula and Attila, the Han and, and Hitler all had courage of their convictions, but no one had the courage to examine his convictions or to change them, which is the true test of character. And I pray that we have enough conviction today, enough burden for the empty pews around us, for the wayward believer, that we have enough conviction to believe what we believe, to hold on and to press on. See, I'm a firm believer that what we know of God in our theology will drive how we live our lives. Have enough conviction to be consecrated to the work of Christ. And if you actually believe that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, 
all-powerful, self-existing God who sent His Son, Jesus, for our substitute. If we believe that, then we will live our lives not being afraid of what man might say. We will live our lives consecrated to God. If we do not believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, then we will live our lives more afraid of what men might say instead of God. Maybe the way that we live our lives, it reveals something about more of our beliefs than what we really would like to admit to. So Stephen was willing to die for what he knew was true. Stephen faced death at the end of his life. He showed tremendous courage. And a man or woman who is full of the Holy Spirit will exhibit courage in times of despair and uncertainty. Verse 58 gives us this idea of being received by Jesus. And may we also be received by Jesus. Look at verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the mob was so angry with Stephen that they took a hold of him, scooped him up, and threw him out of the city to stone him, which is conducive to Leviticus 24 and 14. So at some regard, they were trying to adhere to the law. See, this is not a picture of true justice. This is not a picture of true justice. Even if, even if Stephen or anyone was guilty or blasphemy, there was a better and more civilized way to enact a judgment. Once again, their rebellion, their brokenness, distorted true justice. It distorted their heart and mind. They literally plucked him up and expelled him out, and they began to stone Stephen. In the first verse, or in this particular verse here, we get a glimpse of, of Saul. And hopefully you, you noticed Saul is standing at the, at the, on the outset and the, the garments are falling at the feet of Saul. And it's a bit of foreshadowing, foreshadowing on behalf of Luke. And we'll, we'll come and pick up on the uh, Apostle uh, Paul later on. They must have thought that they were doing what was right which is exactly what we see Saul doing at the beginning of his saga. Saul thought that he was doing what was right in the eyes of God. And by the way, I mentioned self-righteousness earlier. This is exactly the way most self-righteous people are characterized. They are right, and everyone else is wrong. These are the way things ought to be. They are right and everyone else is wrong. And to them, what God truly says in His Word really doesn't matter to them. I was brought up this way and so I adhere to that versus what God's Word says. Stephen was convicted without the regular course of holding a fair trial. And, and yet, in some way, they tried to observe the law even when they broke the, one of the most essential commands in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, that of bearing false witness. Did they forget about that one? And he was stoned in a matter directed in the case of blasphemy. blasphemers. So blasphemer, let's stone him. These witnesses thought they were right. In fact, Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. What do you think it is that Jesus said, He is who without sin cast the first stone? Yet shall purge the evil from your midst, it says. Now, just because you have two witnesses 
doesn't always mean that they are truthful witnesses, as is the case here. Once more, Stephen is moved by the Holy Spirit of God. He calls upon the Lord in verse 59 through 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said, he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Now, when I read these words, I cannot help but the words of the Lord Jesus echoing. And Jesus uttered this near his death. He said in Luke 23, 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, much like what Stephen says here. Lord, receive my spirit. And previously, Jesus said this in Luke 23, verse 34. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Likewise, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Remember, here's a man who is full of the Holy Spirit of God. Could it be Stephen, led by the Holy Spirit of God, that had reflected on Jesus in such a way this is to say that my righteousness and my innocence is in Jesus Messiah. And all you are guilty. At the end of my life, I am thankful to have the confidence in Jesus for him to proudly proclaim, or for me to proclaim, Lord, receive me. I, I remember growing up in a church where People were just uncertain of their salvation. And they would stand up and they would give testimony and they would say, if I could just make heaven my home. Well, you can in Jesus. And if you're in Christ, you have that confidence, that assurance. God's Word tells us of that. God's Word tells us of, of that and that we are in His hand and will never to be removed from Christ. And so, ultimately, the Lord is pleased because of the work of the Son, Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus standing in this vision to demonstrate His approval and His acceptance of Stephen. May that be said of how we represent Jesus in our lives, being received in this sense, to be pleasing to God. Not necessarily in the sense of, Lord, I'm dying right now, receive me. But in the sense of being pleasing, that my worship will be pleasing and received by the God of the universe. I want to be pleasing to the Lord. Just how are we to please the Lord in this life? I have five very quick practical ways and then we'll close. Number one, by exalting Jesus Christ the Son. Simple. Exalting Jesus in our life. Colossians 1, 15-19 speaks of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the centrality of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ. Exalt Him in your life. Secondly, by proclaiming the message of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18-2, through chapter 2, verse 5. Proclaim the message of the cross. People say, Jesus died for my sin. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die for your sin? What is your sin? Thirdly, by believing in God and His promises. 
Hebrews 11, verse 6, this is faith. Just, just having simple faith in God. Having simple faith. Faith seeking understanding. I like that from Anselm, the early, one of the early patristic fathers. Faith seeking understanding. Fourthly, by asking for wisdom. We find this in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. And we find it in James, which is a book of wisdom, almost wisdom literature, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Ask for wisdom. How do we handle persecution, Lord? How do we handle adversity? How do we handle life? Seek wisdom from the Lord. Number five, by staying away from sexual sin and fleshly desires, those things that pull us away from relation with our Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Staying away, refraining from those fleshly desires, by the way, is a form of idolatry. I've added one more. Six, by sharing the gospel with unbelievers, which goes with two, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the message of the cross. Sharing the gospel with unbelievers, which, by the way, is the Great Commission itself, to go and make disciples. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14 through 27, and also chapter 10, 31 through 33. Sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I wonder, would you be so bold as to be pleasing to God, to strive to be pleasing to the Lord? See, the whole saga of Stephen demonstrated that for those who belong to Jesus, he will be their protection, he will be their guide, he, he is their salvation. We live in a world today that, unless you have your head buried in the sand, you know that we live in a world today that calls evil good and good evil. The things that we held as, as good and wholesome things now somehow has reverted and now has been called evil or twisted or wicked. And this is just the twisted backward world that we live in. And we should not be surprised because we live in a broken world. But let me leave you with this challenge. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't be a people pleaser. I don't think Stephen was trying to please this council. He was trying to plead with them and persuade them. Don't be a people pleaser, but be a Jesus pleaser. Amen. Let's pray. Father.